0: Coffee tastes good this morning. It's well needed. Sleep has been a rare commodity at our house for whatever reason. Not sure why. I woke up at four this morning and was so happy it was four and not six. And so I went back to bed, praise God. But that's how it's been the last few, Well, honestly, I think since we st- I started fasting, I started getting up like at three thirty, four o'clock and just be wide awake, wide awake. And uh, man, I'm ready for that to end. I like a little bit more sleep. Uh, and after a while, it wears on me. Chapter 20 in Exodus. Uh, that's where we'll begin. The words of this chapter, you know, they've uh, they've resonated throughout history. Um, I mean, these words that we're about to get into have helped uh, humans, men and women, understand morality and, you know, principles and ethics for centuries. They've stood the test of time. I mean, really, what we're about to read, they, they, these things really have stood the test of time. Just about everyone whether uh, they're a follower of Christ or not, have heard of these commandments. We talked about it. Uh, um, they're the base foundation for many of our laws here in America, and they have influenced nations uh, for generations. And I, I'm only bringing a lot of this up just to remind us here of the gravity uh, uh, and the weight of the, what we're going to read today. They're, they're not just the commands of a generation that have passed. They're just as valid today as they were when they were spoken to Moses up on the mountain. So last week we talked about how God was preparing for this moment by first casting vision. This was chapter 19. He told the children of Israel that if they consecrated themselves and they set themselves apart and and they obeyed his commands, that they would be his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation. And we talked about the seriousness of being holy. We talked about the seriousness of being set apart, peculiar, the importance of it. Because I believe, I mean, with all of my heart, if there was ever a time to focus on what it means to be set apart, it's today. Um, If you look at just even the pastoral system today versus uh, the system of 20 to 30 years ago, it's drastically different. I mean, just the fact that I can come and wear blue jeans today 20 years ago I'd have been thrown out of the church just 20 years ago 30 years ago I mean it would have happened if I have long hair or short hair as a pastor would have been a big deal if I wore white shoes it would have been a big deal uh, there were lots of like, listen a lot of good and a lot of bad from it as well you know uh, the, the the irony is the church that came out of a lot of legalism ran to grace and the problem what happens is and you know one of the things before i really move on i just want to talk about it is is the problem that we have is is everything sits on this seesaw and rather it, than it being balanced it's, we're always running from one end to the next and and so there's this issue that that comes up uh where we we 30 years ago we struggled with legalism we were so mean about it so Uh, arrogant about hey if you dressed a certain way then we looked and judged you to be a certain way if you acted a certain way then it must have been this way and and because that was bad theology and not what Jesus is about we quickly ran to the opposite side where we don't care anything of what you wear what you act what you sound like what you do and we were so eager to give grace to anything that was just the opposite of this but the problem is they had some of it right, but how they behaved was wrong. But because how they behaved is wrong, people ran to the polar opposite. And that's been the problem with the church. It's this giant pendulum. I, I heard Matt Chandler say at one time. He goes, over here, the pendulum swings, and we talk about, man, you better be doing these things because God has said that we should be doing these things. You better obey them. But the problem is if we hang out here too long, we get really legalistic. So the pendulum swings and we come over here and we talk about God's grace and how God's grace saves us from way over there and everything. But the problem is at this point too, you can, if you're not careful, you'll grace yourself right out of holiness, right out of righteousness, right out of obedience right? Because I can do whatever I want. I can take upon the pleasures of anything I want because I have grace and I can do anything. Well, that's not necessarily true. The Bible says you should obey all the commands that God give you. Those who love Christ will do these things, right? So the pendulum swings back over here. And I love Matt Chandler said probably about two weeks out of the year we get that right. Maybe two weeks out of an entire year we actually preach right here in the balance of that. And that's that's where we always need to maintain and watch how we balance that. And And that was the problem with our pastoral system Uh, with every passing year uh, pastoral ministry gets more relaxed in its doctrine and theology as if the closer we draw to the Lord the more relaxed we come and that's a problem the opposite should be true we should be more reverent more holy uh, the closer we draw to him and if we truly understand who God is then it would stand to reason that we'd be a bit more cautious to be more or more obedient to the things he has said you know, I had a phone call this past week, and uh, it was from a pastor uh, in the assemblies. And, uh, and, he, and he's, he's going, hey, man, have you heard about this church out in Austin? I was like, brother, I don't pay attention to anything that's going on in the assemblies of God anymore. Like I, when I left there, I left there. I, 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 there were a lot of things that troubled me in the assemblies when it came to accountability. And there was just a lot of lacking in the leadership when it came to keeping their pastors accountable. So I said, bro, I left there a long time ago, man. I haven't looked back. I'm preaching the gospel. I don't have time to go looking at churches and pastors. And, uh, and he goes, well, man, it's, it's pretty bad right now. It's like, well, what, how bad can it be? He's like, there's this church out of Austin that's, that's getting ready to approach allowing their leadership uh, to marry LGBTQ, to marry homosexuals. And I was like, in the assemblies? <laughs> That's pretty shocking, okay like if you would have told me it was a Methodist church I'd be like, okay, you'd have told me Episcopalian, okay they have a history, okay I mean that universalism has kind of reached inside their churches already to the Pentecostal church, the church that thirty years ago was hugely legalistic think think about the implication of that that inside Pentecost churches churches that have been predominantly like you know where the UPC is kind of driven off of and there's a lot of association with legalism you know with the the flowing of the Holy Spirit think about this I mean uh if there was ever a denomination or a group of people serious about the things of God I believe it's Pentecostal people and uh it's awesome and uh uh, the uh Anyway, the, the so the conversation came up, and, and I was like, I go look at the link he sends me, and of course, that's what this guy's talking about. They want to be inclusive to the LGBTQ community, and uh, and I was like, well, that's unfortunate. You know, I, I want to be inclusive, too, and I said, but you do understand. I told the pastor, I said, you do understand, though, that the reason why we're facing some of these problems is because we've strayed so far from biblical teaching, there's no such thing as lost people in churches in the Bible. I know that sounds crazy and foreign to us because we're so used to inviting lost people to church. But in the Bible, lost people are on the outside, saved people are on the inside. Let me tell you, you know why? We've talked about this many times before, just for the sake of clarity. Because they were a persecuted church. So you didn't invite anybody into the church until you knew they were a dead man walking just like you. You just didn't do that. You got them saved out there. They got baptized outside the church. They confession of faith happened outside the church where witnesses that were both saved and unsaved heard you so that you could be held accountable to the very words that came out of your mouth. That way they would like, you know what? We are meeting at this house now because you've confessed with your mouth in public, because you've shown a public confession of faith through baptism as well. I'm going to invite you now into the church. And if you look at the way Paul preaches and the way Paul sets up everything for the church, you think he's talking to lost people on how to set up what it is to be a deacon? You think he's talking to lost people when in Corinthians he reminds them, some of you used to be thieves and some of you used to be liars and homosexuals and adulterers and all these other things. He said said, some of you were these things. You're not those things once you come in. You're not those things once you get to come into the church. The church isn't made up of unbelievers. It's made up of believers. It's just that simple because we live in a system where we've decided that evangelism is better done inside the four walls than outside the four walls. We've created this problem a little bit for ourselves. And now we're going to have to face it because we created it. We have to face it. And you can argue, well, I it was that way when I was a kid. The blame game is out the door, guys. Here's what we can do today. We can move forward. We can accept responsibility for where we're at with our generation and we can just simply move forward. Try to get people saved, as many as we can. But make no mistake, if we're going to bring them in to get them saved, we are going to face problems from the world, period. There's just no way around them. So I tell my friend this, you know, and it comforts him about like maybe 10%, you know. And, And he was telling me, yeah, they're getting ready to pull that guy's credentials and they're getting ready to let the church go and all this other stuff. So it's crazy stuff happening right now. And if you think it's not different, it's different. It's different. Now, I was thinking more than ever, maybe in the last two or three years, I, I know I've hammered a lot on holiness and righteousness. And, and I was thinking, I said, you know, it, it, it's weird. The latter part of my ministry has really been all about this one saying, hold the line. Hold the line. When it comes to holiness, hold the line. When it comes to righteousness, hold the line. Hold the line. You know, I had somebody ask me the other day, I said, you know, the, the sad part of ministry today that really saddens me is that so many pastors would not make the bar today. If we were were to look at the bar from 30 years ago and we look at the bar today, they wouldn't make the bar today. They don't pray enough. They're too worldly. They're lost in in the culture of the world. There's many of them that are. I mean, they come out of school this way. They come out of school this way. Um, It's the culture. They're lost in the culture. The culture has a giant hook in the church right now. And it's pulling it along, man. Instead of the church pulling the world along, the world's pulling the church along. And if there was ever a time to hold the line, it's today, amen? So when we talk about today, that's, that's what we're talking about. These commandments aren't just commandments that have long since disappeared. They're just as active today as they were then. And may, maybe even more so, like they're so culturally relevant when we begin to read and go through these. Uh, I saw a quote the other day that's kind of stood the test of time and and really, as I approached uh, these words, this is kind of where I, uh, I felt like I related to. It said, the law sends us to the gospel, right? That we may be justified. We understand that statement? The law sends me to the gospel. I realize once I read the law that I've broken some of them, that I need grace, right? And so it's the law sends us to the gospel that we may be justified. We may be uh, 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 helped out, it made righteous, right? Then the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire what's our duty as those being justified, right? So the law drives me to Christ, and then Christ drives me right back to the law. It's good stuff. It, it, the idea behind this is to stand with the Apostle Paul and recognize that the law taught us what sin is, what sin was, right, in our own life, right? It convicted us. It let us know that we fell into sin completely. We're completely lost in it, right? And because we have an understanding of this, it's what drove us to Christ. It drives us to our knees uh, towards repentance. And then when we get up, having been forgiven, having received grace, right? The sheer magnitude of that should be so overwhelming that we ask the Lord now, what should we do, God? Now that I am saved, God, what should I do, right? And there staring back at the end of us of the Great Commission is the command to do all that he has commanded us to do. (laughs) Right back to the law. And there we are. I mean, it's like this circle, right? The law drives us to Jesus. Jesus drives us back to the law. And what does the law continue to do? Drive us back to Jesus. (laughs) It's this cyclical thing that just keeps happening, right? And man, it's not easy. We realize we're going to need grace the more we try to obey the more we try to walk in holiness to be set apart, the more we realize we need grace, right? It's not easy, right? It's okay to fail. That's why we have grace. But the walk of obedience is important. It is our calling. Yes, our failures will be covered by the blood of the lamb, but we have to walk towards it no matter what. We can't get out of it. Can't get out of it. So here we are studying about the law. We're going to start out in verse 1, chapter 20. Verses 1-3 through three. And God spoke all these words saying I am the Lord your God Who brought you out of the land of Egypt Out of the house of slavery You shall have no other gods Before me Let's pray real quick Father May we understand the gravity Of what we're speaking today That Even as you spoke it, you didn't speak lightly. You were giving a set of instructions, God, that would bless and prosper your people, that would make your people into a peculiar treasure, into a kingdom of priests, and into a holy nation. You called it the church, God. It is the light to the world, God. Make us shine, Lord. Help us in that endeavor. May we be obedient to you and follow after you, God. And may we seek your grace when we fail. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, <clears throat> I, while I would as easily assume that every law is equally important, uh, it stands to reason for us to think there's a there's a reason why this one's first, right? Pretty important, right? It would seem that this uh, would lead us to the second command, Uh I'm already getting ahead of myself, uh, that this would lead us to the, the first thing the Lord wants to make clear to a people who have served as a slaves to a nation that has believed in many gods, right? Right? That's, you got to remember like where we're at here and why this is the first one, right? He's talking to a group of people who at one time had followed after him, but now for 400 years, right? They've been in Egypt, right? And so right off the bat, there's only one God and he is your God right? He's the same God that brought you out of Egypt. He's reminding them, this is who I am, right? Out of slavery. There's not going to be any tolerance for serving anything else or anyone else. There are no other gods. But here's the thing, and just keeping it simple, I have to imagine that the children of Israel, they're a lot like us, okay? They're human beings. That in the beginning, when they first moved to Egypt, through Jacob and Joseph, had to have been easier to serve God because you weren't immersed in the culture, You hadn't taken in Egyptian culture. You'd been living out there in the desert with Jacob and his kids, right? They don't know any other God than the one Jacob taught them. So they only know the one God, right? It's a whole lot easier. But the Egyptian culture was so new to them, and and it would have seemed foreign at first, but 400 years have passed. And and let's just be honest, I'm sure that the culture is lost in serving this culture, the Egyptian culture, which is lost in serving whatever God gets them what they want. Do we understand that? That's, that should be easy to understand. Everybody serves the God that gives them what they want, okay? Uh, this is what the Egyptians have done. They've made up all these gods. These gods, believing in these things, have allowed them, uh, uh, or what they believe give them prosperity, and so now the Jews have been introduced into that, and uh, we know that it's taken its toll because, after all, as soon as God sends Moses, what is the first thing Moses tells him? He says that the God of their forefathers is what tells him, right? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Funny how he doesn't mention anybody else that's lived over the last 400 years. Culture has taken its toll on the Jews. Much like today in America, right? Culture's taken its toll in America. We can say we're followers of Christ all we want, but to be followers of Christ literally means to both follow, right, in word and deed the ways of Christ. When people see that we don't uh, follow Christ in the way he says to follow, they assume that we're not Christ followers at all. Same thing with that's going on here. It's why they have to be reminded, yet. Yeah. And yet, what's the first command? Right, you shall have no other gods before me. That's a stark warning not to worship anything else, which leads us obviously into the second command because it's like the inevitable process. If I'm, if there's only one God, and we're not to worship any other gods. Then what is the next idea? uh, Exodus 24 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You know, Charles Spurgeon's thoughts on this bring, I I think, a little bit more clarity. He says this, The first command forbids the worship of another god, and the second strictly forbids us worshiping anything to which our eyes can see. That's interesting. So this kind of command stands as like a warning against materialism or greed, or many other things, right? This is why tithing becomes a practice, right, to teach you that money isn't your source. God is, so that you don't worship money. This command comes with, like, this added bonus also, ensuring that those who choose to make objects into God's to be worshipped will be dealt with. Not good for you, really. I think you could even make a bigger argument here that it really implies that those who don't obey these laws Really, we be dealt with, it, but with the same stroke of the pen, it declares that the obedient will receive love from God. So there's this harvest contained in this command, all dependent upon what you sow. Will you sow iniquity, or will you sow obedience? Right. This will determine your harvest from God. You're encouraged to be obedient, right? As we have said, this isn't an Old Testament thing, it's also the way of Christ, right? Per the Great Commission, to be obedient to all the things that he's told us. But if you continue to do some of these things, if you worship money, you worship what it can bring you, you worship uh, uh, affirmation, there's a lot of things that get into where uh, uh, we worship other things or we make things, God. You know, there's arguments that can be said if we're not careful, we make our children our gods. When our children come first in our life and God doesn't come first, if you're not careful, it can become that. That's a hard thing. It's true, but it's a hard thing to wrestle with. Well, I I love my kid. Do you love your kid more than God? Do you love your spouse more than God? That that, that becomes sin. It becomes sin, and God is a jealous God. Look at the third commandment, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Isn't it interesting that's part of the commandments? I, I mean... I think our culture forgets this one, just being honest, right? You ever notice that our, our movies and TV shows have adapted a rating system that's determined that throwing in a few, we'll call them GDs, all right, as a PG-13 rating? You know what, my my wife, well, one of the things we notice, and especially as we go back, you know, looking at older movies, going, man, I'd love to show my kids these movies. These movies are awesome, right? I can't remember the the when I went back one time and I was, I'm watching Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's going to be awesome because who doesn't want to be an archaeologist until you realize they don't live like that, and it's really boring, right? <clears throat> but everybody wanted to be it when you first saw it, right? And I'm thinking, I'm going to show my kids these movies when Rachel and Reagan were little. It's going to be awesome. I turned that movie on. I was like, holy smokes, I didn't realize they cussed that much. Oh, my gosh, there was so much cussing. And, and it wasn't the language you would think. It's stuff like this, the Lord's name in vain, like a lot. Like you go back and look at a lot of 80s films, and it's happening all the time, and those were PG that's before they decided, okay, we'll up that and we'll create a new rating system, 13, 15, 17, whatever that is, right? But it's funny how when you go back and you look and you do a study on what's, what's happening out there, there's a lot of people that don't take offense to that. They said, well, uh, that the word, when we use the Lord's name in vain like that, that uh, honestly, it's only unacceptable to people who are believers. So that, that's not necessarily it being a curse word. It's just an offensive word to some people. So that's why it becomes more acceptable then a curse word, that's crazy. That's crazy. You, can, you, can, you can't curse, but you can use the Lord's name in vain. That's, that's crazy that that's acceptable behavior. And if that didn't ploy from the devil, I don't know what is. The damage is done, right? We have desensitized our ears to the gross overuse of taking the Lord's name in vain, where many of us today don't even hear it happening. As a kid, I didn't even know it. I didn't grow up in the church at all, so it doesn't surprise me. But it was surprising upon the second time of going back going, oh, 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 my gosh. Oh, my gosh, right? The name of the Lord is just as holy. To hear it and know it is to create reverence for the one who it is speaking of, right? This gives us a more accurate representation of who God is. How can we show respect and give reverence if we can't even show respect and reverence to his name? Jesus said in Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasures heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasures produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? He's implying here that how you speak ultimately reveals what's going on in here. What's going on in your heart? If you're speaking the Lord's name in vain and are not taking this seriously, then there's a pretty good chance your heart doesn't take the Lord seriously at all. That's a problem. One is directly tied to the other. How we speak dictates how we behave and how we act. We should have a problem with that. When people say it, we should have a problem with it, right? It's just how it is. 8 through 11, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and, the rest, and, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The interesting thing to me is how much you could attach each one of these things to other things. I mean, to me, I, I think you could just as easily attach this command to the second commandment. Because one of the reasons that God gives you a a Sabbath is so you understand that everything comes from Him. Everything comes from Him. You don't worship a day off. That day off comes from the Lord. Right? Yes, you can work, but make no mistake, it is God that supplies all your needs. That's why you need a Sabbath to remember that once in a while. Right? Not the world. If you fail to take a Sabbath to take rest, you fall prey to believing that your blessing solely comes from the work of your hands and not God. And that is dangerous ground. That is dangerous ground. I'll put this down. That seems like a bad idea. On another note, isn't it interesting that God commands you to have a day off? That's awesome. What a good boss. You need a day off. I command you to take one day of the week off at least. Right, You could take more, but guaranteed one. Guaranteed one, right? Even God says a day off is good for you. So good, he says, man, I'm mandate. Mandate, day off, everybody gets one, right? And, and it, it is his gift wrapped up in his command, so you can literally say that God doesn't believe in working every day. Praise God. Man, never is that a more happier thing to think about, than God doesn't believe in working every day either. <laughs> Uh, Some days are needed to rest, relax, and recover. And on these days, we worship and we remember the God who cares about our well-being. Amen. Verse 12, the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land and the Lord your God is giving you. I'm going to say that for all my younger generation. Honor your father and your mother. We're listening right here on this side of the room here. That your days may be long in the land that your Lord God is giving you. So coming across this commandment while also seeing how far society has come from the family unit is kind of mind-blowing, just to be honest, right? I had a brief conversation the other day with my sister-in-law, Holly, about uh, ministry. Y'all know Holly. She's been here, right? She and my brother-in-law, Sean, since uh, there's been some transition with the church uh, and Pastor Ford passing away, they've been asked to be youth pastors at their church. And so they have stepped up now into that role. And she had explained to me that they had felt that they didn't know you know, what they really brought to the table in that area. And they feel disqualified. And I relate to that. But I begin to explain her something that the Lord showed me, and and I bring it up just because I think there's power in in the reason why we honor a a, a father and and mother and the things that they have to teach us and and the reason why we we honor there is, as I I begin to tell her, I said, well, listen, there's three things that you and Sean possess, three things to which every teenager needs to understand that the bible is good as it is and it can teach you these things it's better to see it modeled it's better to see it modeled first and foremost you have the ability i told him to teach him what is it to be a woman what is it to be a man like you don't like you can be a 30 year old boy how many know i'm telling the truth there you can be a 30 year old boy but becoming a man is different becoming a man is different Becoming a woman, when you become a woman and you're able to be responsible, right? And you can be responsible for someone else. When you're a man and you're able to be responsible for yourself and responsible for others, there comes a point where you cross the threshold from being a boy into a man, from being a girl into a woman. And a lot of people don't have that modeled. In a day and age where there's a lot of 30-year-olds living at home, finding men and women, adult people are hard to come by. They're hard to come by. Not to say the world's making it any easier for them, but at the end of the day, it's hard to come by. So one of the things I begin to say, number one, you can teach them what it is to be a woman. Somebody who cares genuinely for somebody else, who knows how to deal with a relationship, who knows how to talk, who knows how to act when in public, who who knows how to order from a menu. You think that's a crazy thing, but there's a lot of teenagers that have struggled there. They don't get taken out. They don't get to see some of these things. They don't have uh, men and women in their lives that see the, the opportunity to mentor and seize upon it. This is an opportunity. I told her for you to be to teach them what it is to be a woman. These young girls how to be a woman, and for Sean to teach young men what it looks like to be a man. Secondly, you have a long marriage. You're almost. Tw- I think they're almost twenty years in at this point, T- or maybe over over twenty years. So you are re- You have this long marriage going on. And I don't know if you know how the world works, but it's like a 50% thing with the world, whether uh, there their divorces happening and things like that. And listen, I know people find each other afterwards, but make no mistake, it still doesn't help with divorce being so rampant. And divorce is usually communication issues or other things going on. So I told him, I said, listen, you have a healthy marriage, one that's that stood the test of time so far. And the one thing that maybe some of these kids haven't seen in your youth group is what does a healthy marriage look like? That's a pretty big deal. You know what it is to be a wife and how, and how difficult that can be at times to, to, to have a husband and what it means to compromise, what it means to make co-decisions. Or you know what? Where you just follow your husband or your husband decides, hey, this is what we're going to do, what you said, because it was the smarter thing to do. And teaching someone how to be, uh, what a strong relationship, what a strong marriage looks like, that's huge, right? And I said, the third thing that you offer is raising the kids their son's graduating this year you 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 had a child and you raised it all the way up to the finish here right like you know what it is to be a mom you know what it is to be a dad like that's powerful there's a lot of kids that you know when I I had a youth group uh four or five years ago they didn't have moms and dads teaching them man they were having to figure that thing out on their own. Can I tell you, I thought I was inadequate too. This is what the Lord showed me that I brought to the table. Nobody cared about how if I could preach to kids or not. That's never was going to be the thing that they retained for me. When they hugged me, and, and uh, I saw, saw uh, uh, Shelby Huggins the other day in, in H-E-B. She gave me this big hug. You think she was like, I remember that sermon. Heck no, they don't remember a single sermon. You know what they remember? Shelby remembers being 12 years old and us being on the, the, the van. And that 12-year-old had to tell me where to drop everybody off because I was brand new in Marble Falls and I'd never been to Granite Shoals a day in my life. And so this 12-year-old who sat on the co-chair seat told me where to drop everybody off. And I had to depend on her. And I watched her grow up all the way to she's got a kid now on her own. And she's doing great. She's doing great. And I see all these kids that struggled. You know, over, over life and time, they were struggling through their teenage years. They didn't have these opportunities to have people in their life showing them the way because things happen. But that's what God had sent us to the youth for, to begin to show them what it was to be a man, what it was to be a husband, what it was to be a father, so that, that when they raised kids on their own, when they became adults, they could be functioning adults. We, we honor our father, our father and our mothers, right, because we understand what they bring to the table. Right? We understand what they bring to the table. Um, where was it? These attributes, man, the, these are the things that, that, uh, that are powerful to us. You know, one of the things I was reading, Psalm 327 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it's due uh, when it is in your power to do it. In other words, this is what the Bible's saying give honor where honor is due. Right? That's what it's saying. I call my mom and and dad about every other day, which I never did that in my early 20s. Like since I've gotten saved, it's made me appreciate my parents even more. Maybe having had a family now and these things, I see things in retrospect that I wish I could have been young and done these things early on, right? Here's what's cool about that. The promise of obeying this command is the blessing of a good long life in the Lord. When we honor our parents, and give respect and honor where it's due. God says, I will make sure to bless you with a long life. Man, that's good stuff, guys. That's good stuff. When we honor those who are before us, set above us in leadership, we're not honoring just them. We're honoring the Lord who gave us them. Amen? Man, that's good stuff. That's pat on the back. I'm patting my own self on the back for that one. Exodus twenty thirteen, the sixth command. This one should be simple, right? You shall not murder. Do I got to teach on that one? Um, It sounds simple. It actually, in the Hebrew, it's applied a lot more, actually. The, The words here cover all human death, whether through intent, like you meant to, whether carelessness or even negligence, actually. Moses thought it seemed appropriate to kill someone in the effort to save one of his own people. What's he called in the Bible, though? Murderer. They sing songs about David in all his battles. Saul's killed his thousands. David's killed his tens of thousands. Man, if that ain't a Spartan song, I don't know what is, right? But God did not allow the man who killed by the sword to build his temple. And he loved him. (laughs) I'm not sure there's a righteous way to kill anybody. Now, does God allow it in the Bible? Sure. Does that make it right? I don't think so. I don't think he's ever for it. I think human nature creates it. I think the consequences of human nature create it. but But I don't think it's ever just righteous to kill people. I don't think that's God's intent or God's want. I think that's depravity of men at full-on display. I do think this, that uh, I think his grace sifts through it. I think it sifts through it, and by his power, he somehow helps us rise above it. That's what I think. Exodus twenty-fourteen, the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. I wonder if at first they looked at this and uh, just thought it implied to cheating on their spouse. All right, okay, so we shouldn't cheat on our wife, right? Depending on if they had more than one. They picked that up from Egypt and from a lot of different things. Jacob had more than one, dumb idea, right? Uh, What's funny is I said that around somebody one time. They are like, well, you know, I was like, well, uh jacob had more than one wife he's like oh well he was tricked well nobody made him marry the second one by the way nobody made him marry the second one i, may, I realize i the first one is not what he wanted but you don't have to marry twice okay that you chose to do that that, that was a that was his choosing and the battle that created between those two created a lot of issues you want to know how joseph ends up in egypt because he married two women that's how um but I wonder when, when, when he gave them this, if that was their first idea, like, okay, so just don't cheat on our wife. Like, like We have to be faithful to our wives. But I'm not sure they really understood the seriousness of this being a heart issue here. This commandment is a real big heart issue. You could just as easily tie this one to the 10th commandment, but the, the seriousness of it apparently begged for its own individual warning and command. Jesus has said, though, that this was a heart issue that began the minute the imagination began to run wild. He like draws it back farther, just like with murder. You shall not commit murder, but what did Jesus say? As soon as you thought to do harm to your fellow man in your head, it was murder. Like Jesus drew everything back. He like, he's like, you thought it was bad, and then it got worse, right? Um, Jesus reveals this hard issue constantly rising up in us, right? He backed this up from the action of adultery to the thoughts of adultery being sin. Right? Adult, adultery really happens in the heart, regardless if we commit to the action, though that is the obvious sin, but as soon as the heart begins to commit towards it, that means that all sexual indulgence outside of the confines of marriage is absolute sin. Absolute sin. Thus the seriousness of what we present before our eyes as acceptable. I and mean, one of the things that used to help me Pastor Stephen would always say, like especially when I took the first paycheck from a church, he's like, just remember. That the church is paying you with holy money. And everything you rent and everything you listen to is paid for with God's money. Let the weight of that as a pastor like weigh on you. And I'll never forget that. I'll never forget the seriousness of thinking. I used to go in at like 6.30 in the morning and pray before 8. Because the work day started at 8. And I didn't feel like the church prayed, paid for me to pray. I should already have my own relationship with God, not get paid to have a relationship with God. The, the sad fact is, is that there's a lot of people that think like that. Well, you get paid to do that. Man, if you do, you are not living a good Christian life. You should have, the Christian life should already beset you. You should want Jesus regardless if anybody ever pays you. That should be that way. But make no sense that what we present before our eyes <laughs> man we get, we better take that serious we better take you can't unsee some things from a guy who's spent time in countries where awful things i've seen children dead i've i've seen people do horrible things to each other through depravity through war through famine i can't take those things back i'll never get to unsee those things ever it's funny what sticks with you and funny what you forget but i promise you there's some things that stick with you that you wish you could forget verse 15 the eighth commandment pretty simple you shall not steal. How many of you are waiting for me to say, you shall not pass? You're waiting on that? Yeah, I knew it. Lord of the Rings thing, I got it. You shall not steal is the, is the 15th verse. Again, at least a few of these fall to me, in my opinion, under the 10th. And when we get there, we'll talk about it. As I think they, I think stealing derives from coveting. Uh, I think that's kind of where it comes from. This one feels pretty obvious. Stealing is taking from, from that which you have not sowed, whether legally or illegally. All forms of stealing are bad, right? If you're shady on your taxes, that's stealing. That's just the truth. I know a lot of people that do that, and they're stealing. That's stealing. You have to be able to live in the light. You know, I, I, I get asked about living in a glass house. You know, I live in a glass house. Everything that my life is open to anybody's scrutiny, and, and I'm fine with that. One of the greatest things about living in a glass house is that there are no surprises. It's all out there. By the way, once you get used to that in the first couple of years of living in a glass house, like, it's not that big a deal anymore. Yeah, after a while, it's like, what? you're going to see my failures. When I fail, I'm just going to be open and honest about it. And guess what? It kills scandals. I don't have scandals because it's all out in the open. I mean, I can tell you times where I've come back and I said, well, man, I said a, I said a word that's hadn't said in 20 years. And, man, I'm going to come out and say, hey, I did this. And one of the great things in the pulpit, it becomes the great confessional. Where this is where I felt like Paul said the most liberating thing for Paul was to be able to come out and admit, hey, man, there are some days where I'm trying so hard to do the right things, but I don't do the right things. You know how liberating that is for Paul? Of all people that says stuff like, Paul, you struggle. Paul's like, I struggle more than all of you, <laughs> which makes me think. I mean, he must have had an anger streak. You know, he must have had some serious like anger issues or anger problems when Paul's like, I'm the worst sinner of all of you. I've killed people. I've murdered people. It makes me think I still think about these things. You know, like there's some people that still make me angry. There's some people that still make me mad. There's some people that obviously look at how angry he got when people didn't get it when he was the Pharisee. Can you imagine how angry he got when he realized people don't get it when he's talking about Jesus? I mean, come on. You think anger just leaves you because you get saved? How many has it left you? Hadn't left me any. So anybody else, I mean, where just all of a sudden you quit being a human being and now you're the most liked person ever and you're like Jesus and every day you walk around and just give grace and birds land on you and all that kind of stuff, you're like a fairy tale. No, man, you're human. You're human. That's how you are, right? We still struggle. Paul's like, I still struggle. I still have these issues. There's things where I get angry and mad, right? It's just, It's just the way it is, but... This is where these things, we try, we work at it, right? Exodus 20, verse 16, the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Pretty easy, again, bearing false witness, just another way of saying that you are lying and being a liar. And uh, lying hurts everyone, not just you. Yeah, it's going to hurt you no matter what if you become a liar, but uh, come on, everybody's heard the... uh, the you know the all the little stories about you know the boy who cried wolf you lie enough people just get for they don't even believe you anymore uh hello cnn i don't think they lie about everything but come on you get caught lying enough sorry i'm not meant to talk about political stuff but if you get caught lying i don't care who what network you are if you get caught pushing fake stuff or fake stories like even if it's just one or two why would i believe you after that you ruin your credibility I'll never forget. I think the most shocking thing for me politically was is when, uh, when Comey was going to testify before Congress, and I was like, "I really like this guy. I mean, he's the head of the FBI. I, 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 I'm wanting to believe he like or here's not wanting. I really believe this guy's like a Boy Scout and he's stuck in the middle of this whole thing. And then the guy got on stand and was like, yeah, I leaked information and we knew about stories that the uh, New York Times was publishing that weren't true, but that's not our job to do. I was like, oh my gosh, this guy is a liar. He lied and then tells the truth about his lying and And then tells us how there were stories that were being fabricated that the FBI was, why would I believe what the New York Times says now? Why would I believe what he says now? Once you're a liar, the boy cries wolf. Like now you're telling the truth after you admit that you've lied? That's the problem with it. He's probably an okay guy like everybody else because everybody lies. Welcome to the truth. That's just true. Man, I knew a pastor all the time. Man, he would ta- they, they taught in leadership. Man, every pastor lies. He's like, every, you've been to somebody's house where that food was nasty, and you were like, oh, it's good. Like, every pastor has lied at some point or another. And I would laugh if, if that, there's probably a time. I don't remember saying. I usually tell somebody if I like it or don't like it. You know, I'm pretty honest about that. But I don't know. Like, I don't remember, like, openly lying like that. But it could be. It could be. Um, but lying hurts everybody, man. Nobody wins when we lie. And there are two ways to lie know this I talk about them a lot because I've had to deal with them a lot lying by commission and lying by omission let me see if I can explain this right lying by commission is when you present something as true something you believe or know to be false right so if you know it's not true but you present it to be true that's a lie that's like the obvious way to lie like I know the sky is blue but I'm going to say it's green and I know it's not but I'm going to say it is Maybe because we're inside and you don't realize that's what the sky looks like, so I'm going to take advantage of that, and I'm just going to boldface lie. This is mostly what we do when you're young. Now, when you're young, one of the things you will learn, the unfortunate thing, because we're all little lawyers, every one of us, right? This is what we do as we get older. Uh, We're a little bit more clever, right, which leads us into lying by omission, okay? Lying by omission is when you know somebody believes something to be true that you believe or know is false, And rather than say something, you allow them to believe the false idea. So it's saying, you know, like you you get home and, and, and mom would say, hey, did you do your homework? And like you did a little bit of it, but you didn't finish it. But you don't mention you didn't finish. You go, I absolutely worked on it. Now, I didn't say I finished it. I just said I worked on it, right? I'm being deceitful. That is lying by omission. Man, we're good at stuff like that. We're good at stuff like that. That's what we're like really good at. And like when we're kids, we learn that when we're younger. And then as we get older and like, hey, you know, like even it's little things, it works into the routine. Did you get this report done? I have been working on it. I hadn't worked on it at all, but maybe a little bit. Maybe I pulled it up, right? But I don't let out all the details. And so I hide the details and things, right? And this is where it comes, right? Sometimes we do this simply by just not correcting people when we know they're wrong. When you know that somebody, well, I didn't lie, I just didn't say anything. But you let them believe the lie. That's deceitfulness. That's lying by omission. You, you withheld information that would change the fact. S- sometimes we do this. We give limited information to mislead them. Can I tell you, man, I, I can tell you I have been to some church meetings in my life where I've seen it happen. Where we don't want to share all the details of every little thing of where it's all going. So create these beautiful little pie charts. And these beautiful little like... PowerPoint things to show you where the bulk of everything's going without actually showing you the details because if I show you the details I might reveal something I don't want you to see. That's lying by omission. That's lying. That's lying. And the problem is once you start lying, once you start lying, where does it stop? And how do I believe anything else that comes out of your mouth at that point? And if you'll lie about little things I've found out in life. If you'll lie about little stuff my gosh, when something big and embarrassing comes up, you are going to lie. Hands down, you are going to lie. Because if you couldn't handle it while it was a little thing, man, I get frustrated at work. I'm at work, and we'll take in money from somebody, and you know how many people will lie over $5? I'm like, five bucks, just give it. Like, if you lie over $5, you're going to rip me off in something really bad. Because 20 or 30 bucks, and you're willing to lie over $5? You are definitely going to lie over anything more than $5. And then I start thinking, and I start placing a value to it. I don't know if anybody else does this. Maybe this is revealing too much about me. But uh, if I think you would lie over $5, bucks, i am like, is that all your integrity's worth? Can I buy your integrity for $5 that easy? Like, man, like that's the worst witness ever. I hope that's not your best friend. Like, if he has to, like, say that you were supposed to be someplace every one day, like, this guy for five bucks will say it. His integrity is worthless. Then I start thinking about, well, what's your integrity worth? At what point will you lie? Listen, as a deer hunter, here's where it comes up. If I see a big enough deer off the side of the road, how big has it got to be before I do something illegal? I often said, man, it better be giant. Because I've yet to see one big enough yet that's made me think about it. But then I want to be smart and humble and say, just means I had not seen a big enough one yet. I had not been tempted yet, but it doesn't mean I won't be. You understand that? Like, let's just be reasonable. I'm human. I'm not, it's not like I want to ma- make myself better. A like, you know, pastor would never lie. Well, wait a minute. Nobody's offered me a million bucks to lie either. What's that number? What's the number to your integrity? God says thou shalt not lie. That's a period on the end of that. Do not bear false testimony against anybody. Don't lie. Don't. And yet, there's no like exemption. Like, well, but if you get a million bucks, you can lie a little. You know, like, no, there's no exemption to that. Like, you're to be a person of integrity, which, by the way, is what makes you peculiar. How come you can't be bought? Why is it that your principles are so strong? Why is that? That's so weird. Like, why wouldn't you, if you could lie to get it, make it 20 bucks cheaper for you and your family to go do something, then, listen. Man, if I really wanted to be, I'd preach on why you shouldn't be bringing all that extra stuff to the movies, but I won't go there. I won't go there when you're bringing all the Walmart candy. Where's my wife? She needs to hear this. (laughs) Better shut up right there, huh? My pastor, you just call it done. Call it done. The things that life teaches us, Amen. All right, last one. Tenth commandment, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. See, I I think this could apply for this is the stealing, the lying, and everything else is because I think it comes from coveting. And, And this was actually... Excuse me, this was actually the sin that broke the Apostle Paul. If you want to know, like, an insight into what he struggled with, Romans 7 7 reads, What then shall we say? The law is that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known what sin was. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You, had, you shall not covet. What did Paul struggle with? He struggled with coveting. He wanted esteem and prestige like he saw the other Pharisees get. And he thought he could do that by being uh, uh, zealous for God. And that led him to murder. Think about that. Think about that. When we lust after stuff that other people have or possess, it leads to jealousy and envy. And those attributes lead to anger and strife. And all of it leads to sin. When we covet our neighbor's wife, it leads to... Adultery, right? You see where I said they could all tie? Really, you could narrow down like there's maybe like really three or four of these that you could just like go, okay. It's really just four commandments and just narrow it down to four really because they all are working off each other, right? When you covet your neighbor's stuff, it leads to stealing. I'm about to go get it. It's about to be my stuff. In the Marine Corps, we called that we don't steal, we acquire. We acquire. Well, it, wasn't, it was sitting out here. Nobody's out here to own it or claim it. It must be mine. And that's how, I mean, you know, we we have fancy ways, right? When we covet our neighbor's life, it leads to false testimony and false witness against them. We call that slander, right? They're living so great or they're living so good. You know what? Something's got to be wrong with them. I can tell you, even as a kid, we understood that, you know. I talked about it before he was a pastor today. I went and met him. I actually sat in a conference with him while he was teaching church planning. But I went to school with this kid, Kevin Cox, and he was perfect, and I hated him for it hated him for it and i always thought man something's wrong with this kid like his dad was the assistant principal and he could vouch that his dad whipped me ever more than he ever whipped him promise you like i guarantee you if uh uh punishment or or uh, discipline is love his dad loved me more than he loved him guarantee you um but kevin was a good kid There was literally nothing you could ever find wrong with him. He just loved Jesus, lived for the Lord, played baseball and things with all of his heart, and was good. Was good at just about everything he did. That's what made you hate him. Like, this guy's good at everything. Everything he does, everybody bless him, makes good grades, people love him, blah, blah, blah. Turns out he was just a follower of Jesus early on in his life. He understood these principles and ways, and it would grow him up to his first thing. He'd go to college, learn seminary, and the first thing he wants to go do is at this little kid from Kaufman, Texas, who graduates from a little know-nothing class, decides, I'm moving to Seattle. I'm going to start a church in the most depressing place I possibly can. And I can say that because I've been there. It is depressing. But he planted a church up there and then grew that church up there and did that for a decade and then came down here to Heartland, Texas, and has planted a church out here called Vista Church, and it is rocking and rolling. Man, that just was his life. He knew as a young man he loved Jesus, and that was his life. And I can tell you as a kid who didn't love Jesus, I couldn't stand him because his life was right, and I envied it. I wanted it. I saw it, right? Our society is struggling as we speak, right? It's the reason we have tabloids. We love to talk bad about those who are good, right? Like all our actors, they have all this money, and they're trying to tell us how to live, right? And we get mad at them because we what? We hear all the gossip and slander about them for all the people who hate the fact that they have money and wealth and everything else, right? I mean, that's just how it is. This is the political sphere, the way it is. Come on. It's the reason that drama TV shows exist. It's the reason all drama exists. So we covet each other's stuff all the time. We covet lives. We covet emotions. We covet looks. We covet everything, right? It's just how it is. I think literally this covers a lot of what is really happening in the human psyche. Last thing as we close, and if y'all want to grab joy. 18 through 21, now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, that's terrifying. The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, I love this, you speak to us. Like that, it's like a distance, right? They stood far off and said it. So you know they're yelling, you speak to us and we'll listen. But don't let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear. God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. I think about that song, you know, we sang last week, you know, uh, show me your glory. And it talks about wanting to be like Moses. And then that phrase, well, I'm not afraid then maybe you don't have a right picture of what you're talking about. <laughs> like, there's a reason why. Like, by the way, Joshua's in that group. And I tend to think Joshua's not a guy who's easily frightened, but he's in the group that's going, you talk way over there. You pray, Moses, way over there. We're going to stand back here. We trust you, buddy. Right? I'm not, I don't want to get close. And this guy's fought wars, and he doesn't want to get close either. I'm not sure... That phrase is correct in the song. I think we should be a little terrified. We should be a little scary. Um, It it is neat, this principle, because this, this commands are breaking out. God says if you follow these commands, this is where it's going to lead, chapter 19, right? To a peculiar treasure. You'll become my peculiar treasure. You'll become my kingdom of priests. You'll become a holy nation. If you'll follow these commands, it will set you apart from everybody else and make you different and then not only that but he gives you these commands in such a way so that you'll have reverence for him and in fear but that, that means it also begins like proverbs 9 10 reads the fear of the lord is the beginning of what wisdom and the knowledge of the holy one is insight that's what it says so here at the cusp of the beginning of the teaching of the ten commandments god reveals himself in such a way as to bring fear to the people. Why? Because you rightly should. If you do not follow these things, this is the God to whom you serve, who pulls you out of the land of Egypt. And he didn't do it by asking nicely. He didn't do it by asking nicely. Matter of fact, go back and read. How many times does it say Pharaoh relented, but God hardened his heart? Go back and read that hard truth. That's hard truth right there. That's like election stuff and Calvinistic stuff, and we don't have time to get into it. But it says God hardened the heart of Pharaoh so that he took it back. He wanted it to be hard. He wanted to make a point that was going to be so incredible and so great. It would be terrifying. Why? Because it would be the beginning of wisdom. So that you would understand how great, how mighty, how powerful he is. And it's here that God begins their journey into godly wisdom. He shows up in a way that will mark the occasion where they will consider the seriousness of what is being said, and they will listen and mark this with their own heart. Now, for us today, we do so the minute we encounter Christ. In our ignorance, we had no fear of God, but we came to Him, right, through grace and through love and mercy, and these attributes caused us to look into the character of God, right? right? We, we weren't born out of fear, Right? It's just New Testament. We just weren't. We saw Jesus. Jesus doesn't approach us in fear. He approaches us in love and says, listen, my grace is going to change you. I'm, I'm not coming like Old Testament God at this point. I'm coming like New Testament. Grace and love is going to be how we're going to make a difference. Because he, by the way, the Old Testament is where God tries fear and everything else. And then he sends Jesus. Jesus says, well, let's try love and grace. And let's see how many people change for that. So that's where we come in. We saw love. We saw grace. We saw mercy. It caused us now to look into the character of God. And we've seen that there is much to be frightened of when it comes to God. And yet in witnessing his mercy firsthand and seeing this different side of him, we have even more respect because we start to understand that we deserve the wrath of God. This guy who makes himself very terrifying on the mountain, we deserve that God. But that's not how he shows up to us, right? And so we, we kind of respect him even more. And we take these commands that he gives us seriously and that Jesus commands us to and his friends, his disciples, to obey him. So we do, right? And that's the walk of holiness. The walk that sets us apart from all others, right? We, we came to Christ in grace and love and mercy Right? Having not walked under the law, but having been convicted by the law. And then what does Jesus tell us to do once we are his disciples? He says, My disciples, because they love me, will obey all my commands and decrees. So now he sends us right back. You see the loop? Let me repeat the words I said to you in the beginning. You see, see the loop. The law sends us to the gospel, right? To Jesus, that we may be justified. Because only Jesus can, but the law makes me realize hey, I covet, I lie, I'm stolen, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. If I ever thought things that were impure? Sure, man. If I watched? I, I didn't come from the church. You dang right I did. Right? If I ever spoken the Lord's name in things? Sure, I have. I've, come, I've broken just about every one of these things. Right? And that sent me to Jesus because God in the Old Testament is terrifying, but he offered me through Christ grace, love, and mercy. And so now I receive it. And then what does Jesus send me to? At the end of the Great Commission, he says, now obey all my commands. Now I want you to start here in grace, love, and mercy and go back. The gospel sends us to the law again to inquire what is our duty to those who are justified. God justifies me, even though I'm not worthy of it, to what? To go back and relook at things and go, let's commit my life now to be set apart, to live in obedience to the one who's called me, right? The one who saves me. Now, will I fail at these things? Yes. Yes. Will I be tempted by things? Absolutely that's the part where I get to know Christ part, right? The grace, love, and mercy. God's given me grace. I'm going to fail at these things. I can't succeed completely 100% at here, right? Through Christ I can, right? Because grace and mercy. But listen, if I, if I thought that this is what saved me, I'd be legalistic. But make no mistake, this is this war. This is this where I was talking. It's a pendulum between the two, right? Where on one side of me is going, listen, it takes grace and mercy to be saved. But make no mistake, you should be living right. Well, how do I live right? By going back and looking at the law. But the law is what leads me to legalism. No, 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 no. You're not focusing. If you focus only on the law, you will be back in legalism. If you focus on Jesus while trying to obey the law, you'll have balance. You'll have balance. You can live a right life, a holy life but also a grace-filled life without judgment to someone else, knowing that the only reason you're able to follow any parts of the law whatsoever aren't because you're so strong-willed, awesome, and, and good-looking. Uh, it will be because the grace of God has allowed you to overcome things in your life. And then when people aren't where you're at, you'll give them grace because you'll remember, too, all the times you failed trying to be that. That's where God has called us, this little circle here. That just spins us in this circle, right? And the key is figuring out the balance, how to stay focused on Jesus while also trying to be obedient to God. Don't get caught up in judging whether somebody else is obedient. You worry about you, and you let Jesus worry about others, all right? You worry about you, and you let Jesus worry about others. And let's worship him this morning.